Hello and welcome to another episode of Heresy Grad School. I am your uh, adjunct professor, Jesse. I'm here today with your tenured professors, Jason, Pat, and David. Hey, Hi, guys. Hey, guys. So we are back with more uh, Dark Angel Book 9 discussion. And tonight we're going to be going through uh, pages 88 and 89, if we can make it to 89. I know sometimes we get a little <laughs> sidetracked, but that's fine, because there is a lot to take in with this book. So much lore. Oh, my God. So with that, where do we want to start off with? Uh, 88, uh, Fortress of Pride? Yeah, definitely. Uh, just for those of you guys who might be dropping in, uh, haven't listened to the last couple or few episodes we've recorded, um, definitely go back and, and uh, give them a listen you know, I think the last episode we talked about is some of the the deep uh, complexity and nuance of the Dark Angels and, like, uh, their orders and their hierarchy. Um, so we're definitely going to be getting into that again, touching on that as, like, a, you know, um, a mainstay of the Legion, right? That's sort of who they are and... Um, Sort of how they how that shapes them over the course of of the Great Crusade and and the heresy. So I don't know, Jesse. I've been doing a lot of uh, sort of extra reading mm-hmm. at home. Um, finished Luther. Uh, almost done with the Lion, uh, the Primark novel, and I've actually just finished Mortis. So <laughs> I promise no spoiler alerts on that one. But um, but yeah, man, being the Dark Angels are a huge part of uh, the, I want to say the beginning heresy, and then they, the late heresy. Uh, mm. they, I mean, they come in, they come in really strong at the end. Uh, and it make, well, one, it's, I'm really delighted that they're actually making an appearance in the Siege of Terra. Yeah. Because for years, we kind of expect, oh, they kind of showed up late, but well, without little spoilers, obviously in Saturnine at the end, it showed up with Dark Angels showing up, so that was nice. But we won't go into it anymore because I also haven't read Mortis yet. All right, I no get... spoilers, <laughs> just teasers. But it makes sense also with them, you know, not being around in the meat of the heresy due to the fact that they were launched off into the eastern fringes by Horus as kind of a plan to keep them out of the way for most of the heresy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, to speak to sort of the intent of the lion, right, he wasn't just somebody who could be, I think, commanded, um, you know, even by the War Master. I think it speaks to his purpose and design. I think um, we've, I mean, we've touched on this before. You know, each Primarch sort of has a purpose and design, uh, archetypal and the the lion is is really he's his purpose is to exterminate without trace any potential threat to humanity as a species mm-hmm. like without prejudice without sympathy without regard just wipe it off the face of the earth and so that it's not even recorded or remembered in any history book, right? Right. Like I think that the 
the Primark novel mentioned that, you know, while Lehman Russ may have been his executioner, the line was his exterminator. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, so Russ is sort of, um, he's a, I guess a contingency plan or, um, I, I guess, what do you call it? Um, uh, a deterrent. I think yeah. that's the word they use, right? He's a deterrent so that, you know, nobody goes astray, mm-hmm. but that the lion, when he's sent in with the first legion, uh, that, yeah, the deterrent part yeah. is over with, <laughs> yeah. there's no hope for you at that point. Right. Like there's no quarter, there's no means to an end that doesn't. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it ends badly for you if you're up against the dark angels. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's some interesting points I want to touch on, uh, for like to that end. Um, mm-hmm. I want to, I definitely want to talk to Jason about this because I've, I, as, as I listen to sort of the Primarch um, series, I think there is, there's even a hidden purpose to the Dark Angels and the Lion, um, like a contingency within a contingency. There's a reason they were given the weapons of old night, right? Sure. Um, uh, but I definitely want to hit on that a little bit later. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I'll, man, let's, yeah, yeah let's, go ahead. let's get into it. I'll, I'll start with the first, uh, the first section of fortress of pride. Now I'll read a little bit and we can talk about our thoughts about it and see where it goes from there. On page 88 of fortress of pride, these trials would shape the Legion into a fearsome weapon, the largest and most heavily armed of all Legionis Astartes during the early years of the great crusade. They fielded more warriors under arms, maintained a larger fleet, and had access to weaponry more powerful than any of their brother legions at that time, even those such as the Luna Wolves and Space Wolves, which had already been reunited with their Primarchs. The Grand Master of the First Legion stood at the left hand of the Emperor, one of the most influential personages in the early Imperial Court, whose counsel was second only to that of Malkador and Horace Lupercal. Despite the hidden nature of many of their triumphs, they were acknowledged by all as preeminent among their post-human kin, the most powerful force at arms in the serried ranks of the Imperial armies. In those heady years of conquest and victory, the First Legion stood true to their name at the apex of Imperial might, feared by those who stood against the Emperor and his dream of unity and respected by all those who fought at their side. Sort of a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) There's kind of a lot of them, yeah. Well, there are two things I wanted to touch on there. Uh, first off, we are chatting about this a little bit before. I love how they say specifically the Grand Master is second only to Malkador and Horus Lupercal. Uh, no mention of Constantin Valdor, who is definitely there at this point. Uh, the custodians have been around since before the Unification Wars, and Valdor was one of the first of them. But uh, also... Like you were guys were talking about, the uh, kind of the difference between Lehman Russ and the Lion. Uh, Lehman Russ feels like the guy that talks a big game. The Lion is the guy that talks absolutely no game at all. But just like by the time, like you said, by the time he shows up, it's like your shit's already done. Like Lehman Russ, you cannot not hear coming. 
Like <laughs> if Lehman Russ gets an assignment, like everybody hears about it. That's right. <laughs> if the lion is told to do something, you'll never hear about it because everybody that heard about it besides the emperor is now like ashes in, you know, floating through the galaxy. Right. <laughs> and it, it's also interesting to point out that this is the largest force in the Imperium and they still haven't had their Primarch found yet. I thought that was kind of fun little tidbit. Interesting. I don't remember which number uh, the lion was in like, you know, being found. I, um, honestly, that's the one thing like I can't remember between the legions is like which order the Primarchs were found in. Oh yeah. Except for the last three, which were Angron, Korax and Alfarius. And by that point, he had just given up. Um, I feel like yeah, the line was fairly, uh, was fairly uh, early on. But I don't know. I'm going to cheat and use Google and talk about it. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely we can the you know the power of the internet is at our fingertips. We'll find out and uh, we'll make sure we let you listeners know but uh but yeah i mean there's some there's like chilling examples of what the lion is willing to do to accomplish like his purpose right so it's not just it's not just that he has this uh idea of who he's supposed to be right he's willing to sacrifice anything in the name of his oath to the emperor, right? And I think that's really an important distinction because when you think of the First Legion, the Knightly Orders, oaths, the Round Table, right? It's 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 that it's honor, right? So you've you've sort of taken a fealty, you've knelt mm-hmm. before you know the liege lord and sworn an oath, and nothing in the universe would break the oath that, you know, the lion has taken. And I think that's an, that's like, that is the most powerful thing you can say about him. So like he loves the first legion. He loves the dark angels and his, he thinks of them as sons as much as any other Primarch. But if the emperor was like, yeah, you know, uh, take, take care of this threat to humanity on the Eastern fringes, he would not think twice about sacrificing half of his legion to accomplish that mission. Right. Like that's not even a consideration. And he would feel it, but at the same time he would still do it. Yeah, absolutely. So I found myself on Lexiconum and they apparently they have the order of discovery for the line as the 11th. Hmm. And I'm trying to find out their citation for that. But, eh. Uh, The first expedition forums provided by Black Library publishing author Laurie Golding. Hmm. And cannot be found. That link is dead. (laughs) But they say 11th. So, there you go. Take that information as you will. But... We've been talking about the lion, and yet we still have not even found him in this book yet. He has not been discovered. Uh, the dark angels are still being led by a grandmaster, Astartes, and uh, they're just running hog wild across the galaxy. 
So, uh, continue on, yet, as with all things, the glory of the First Legion would be a fragile thing, and one that could endure only for a short time before becoming something less than it once was. For the First Legion, in those days before the return of their Primarch, the great foe that would topple them from their place of honor would not be any terror from the outer dark, but rather their own hubris. There's that word. There's that word. There's that word. For though the black cruisers of the Legion were ever to be found at the edges of the map, hunting for monsters in the dark between the stars, they now took a perverse pride in pitting themselves against only the most powerful of foes, those that wielded a power equal to that of their own, those in whom they saw a possibility of defeat. At last, a worthy opponent. Other, fret, other threats deemed too insignificant for the First Legion, too weak to pose a real challenge, foes that would not test their strategies or meddle would often be bypassed and left to the Imperial Army regiments and other Legion fleets that followed in their wake. Yet with each encounter, they grew only stronger. No enemy, no matter how powerful or destructive, could stop them, and each triumph only added to their shield of arrogance they had built around themselves. Yeah, so, so I think we start to see something about the, um, I guess, the chink in the armor, right, of the Dark Angels. So, seems effectively uh, a sense of masochism almost. It, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's, it's this idea that they have to continually test themselves against a, you know, a, a greater adversary. It's, it's the quest, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if they're not worthy, then, you know, they some, they somehow fall short in the eyes of, you know, whatever they're, they're the grand master, the emperor, their, you know, their primarch. Mm -hmm. And so it's this idea that, if they're not continuously testing themselves against a worthy opponent, a greater adversary, that they're not accomplishing a worthy end. And I think so you can put this in the sense of the Great Crusade, like there are plenty of legions that went out and said, okay, well, we're rediscovering humanity's lost empire, right? Humanity's lost galactic empire. And we're going to bring you back into the fold. And yeah, you may have resisted us at first, but you guys are not bad people. You're just a little misguided. We're going to take out your leadership and then we're going to bring you back. Like the dark angels, they would have none of that. They'd be like, yeah, screw what? this planet. Let's, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The solar auxilia can handle that. Right. Or like whatever, right. right. The, the, the next legion on the, on the list can handle that, but like, that's not for them. So, yeah, they're really they're going out and they're and they're they're finding the nightmares in the galaxy to test themselves against. They're right? getting deep in the paint. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but it, I mean, that also leads to the uh, I think the chink in their armor, right? Which is you know you can call it hubris, uh, you can call it whatever you want, but. Uh, and then they also form these like internal orders and uh, secret societies, wheels within wheels of, um, uh, you know, and, and so it, it does become, I think, a bit of, uh, an, you know, the double edged sword, right, where they're continually testing themselves, but then that knowledge becomes contained. It, it's, it's not shared throughout the Legion. It's not shared outside of the Legion. So, um, you know, it almost becomes like the privilege of the people 
you know, the, the, the Astartes that go out and, and, uh, and gain that. It's, it's interesting. All right. I'll continue on a little bit more. Uh, the stubborn pride that had sustained them through hardships and unnumbered now became a double-edged, double-edged, double-edged blade. The hexagrammaton, once an ever-shifting body of knowledge that changed to match each challenge, had become fixed in place, the warriors of the first assuming that they had reached the apex of skill and could learn no more. Recruitment from outside their ancient enclaves on Terra and a few other worlds slowed to but a trickle, with those from outside the traditional recruiting grounds considered less valuable. Each battle led them further down the path of willful arrogance, each victory hailed as a triumph of their skill, and each defeat dismissed as folly of lesser breed of warrior and leaders rightfully culled from the Legion by their failure. Tradition and ritual had become more valued than innovation, with each order and host jealously guarding their own small fragments of the Legion's battle lore, certain that it was this scrap of knowledge that was its true heart of the Legion's success. Definitely sounds like... The time old story. The time old yeah, story. They're going down a dark hole. Well, it almost sounds like um, combinations, uh, and I guess this would be really appropriate for the Dark Angels, since they're kind of the template. But it also sounds like they're kind of suffering from some of the same downfalls as some of the other legions. Like uh, the Emperor's children always had that thing with perfection. Like it was this mm. uh, attainable, like specific goal they could get to. And it's like, once they hit it, it's like, oh, well, that's it. I'm perfect. I don't need to improve anymore. <laughs> right. You know, it's like an attainable, you know, final level. Uh, and kind of combine that with uh, a little bit of what was making the Thousand Suns uh, have some issues. Is yes, they were all about the pursuit of knowledge to the point to a fault. But also they were starting to become, even among themselves, uh, before the burning of Prospera, they were starting to become really insular. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, instead of you know learning knowledge and distributing it to the enlightenment of all, they were becoming really insular and you know guarding that knowledge jealously. Yeah, Jason, I think that, I think that's a really good point. I think when you think of the first legion as the template, um, you know that they would suffer from some of the flaws of the you know, the traitor legions to come, the fallen legions, I think they would certainly have those, you know, inhibitions that are not, you know, guided, you know, by a, by a primarch or whatever. So I think those are all there because they're not, you know, like we talked about before, they're not homogeneous. They're not taken from a, a singular sort of intake, like the thousand sons right they're not taken from like a, a one culture like the Achaemenid um empire yeah and so i think they would have all of those flaws in them um maybe not to the extent you know that some of the traitor legions had but i think all of those legions fell the traitor legions right this is sort of a, a segue but like the traitor legions fell not because they were corrupt in any way, but because they followed their primarch into damnation. So I think all the uh, flaws are there um, and they're just maybe expressed differently. I think it could also be 
to the Dark Angel's advantage, though, because I think because they're not uh, homogeneous in the same way, uh, that they sort of protect themselves. They become insular mm-hmm. to those types of um, failings, right? To some degree. I feel like uh, up next, things start to take a bit of a darker turn. There was no pun intended with that either. My bad. <laughs> So, the Legion began to turn in upon itself, the openness and inquisitive nature of their early years slowly being replaced by a secretive and tradition-bound approach. They had begun the Great Crusade as mentors and guides for the other Legions, seeking out the stratagems and tactics, though, through which the potential of the Legionis Astartes might be fully realized. But now came more and more to resent those that had once guided. The other Legions claimed world after world for the Emperor, Easy victories in the eyes of the First Legion, trivial conquests against unworthy foes, yet ones for which they received laurels and praise equal to that of the First Legion's hard-won battles. Some also came to rival the power of the First. The Ultramarines, now reunited with their Primarch, could claim more warriors under arms and the Imperial Fists under Dorne boasted the firepower of the immense relic such as the Phalanx and their fleets to a legion that had built its pride upon a sense of authority, some might say superiority, to find itself now merely one of many would shake its foundations. Oh no, I just thought of something. Uh-oh. What's oh, no. Are the Dark Angels like an analogy for 30k hobbyists? Not this. So, all right, think about it this way. When you start out as a hobbyist, you're all like bright-eyed and you're asking all these questions and you're excited and you get better and better at stuff. But like slowly, you see it morph from like asking questions to like, no, that's not how you play 30K. This is how you play 30K. And you become like hidebound to tradition and what like, you know, the mm. game quote unquote is. I don't know. That armor looks a little too marked. <laughs> Seven for me. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not liking that. You playing a siege of terror <laughs> army, bro? <laughs> oh no! It's Anuja's <laughs> final stroke. This is his parting <laughs> gift, guys. <laughs> and then you can see all the other hobbyists around you just having fun with it, and that it doesn't like make you think like maybe I should try it. No, it makes you bitter and angry because no, they're getting all the easy victories and everybody's just patting them on the back. But it's me doing the real work, I built, keeping this one gate nobody cares about. I built all these 200 infantry from Forge World Resin. Then suddenly you roll up with this GW plastic Mark IV bullshit. And what the hell? Right. You might as well go play <laughs> ninth edition 40 kids. Ah, well, I don't know. I'm not going to think too hard on this. <laughs> I don't want to get sad. <laughs> we love all of our listeners. Please uh, enjoy, is... enjoy the rest of the show. <laughs> well, yeah, here, that's here the attitude to have. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, here here we see that you know finally the legions are starting to catch up, and that's on from what we read in the past. The dark angels had a pretty comfortable lead on everybody. They did definitely, indeed, have the authority over the rest of the Astartes. And now they're starting to sink back into a collective. Yeah, I think they're doing a really good job on kind of illustrating how that 
almost that like stagnation you talked about is really holding them back because they're not sharing anything anymore. They're not innovating. Like everybody that learns a thing just like guards it jealously, Mm -hmm. you know, convinced it's the one thing that keeps them above and better than everybody else in the room. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think absolutely. Right. So I think there is some kind of jealousy going on in the first legion, um, maybe not overtly, but I think because they can't talk about what they've done, um, sometimes they can't even talk about what they've done within their own legion. I mean, it's just, it's, they're sworn to secrecy on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Jesse, you know, you read the Primark novel and you know about the Darkwing protocols, um, you know, if they're only activated in extremis and, People don't even know within their own legion who's who until you sort of recite the right phrase or, you know, you the right incantation at the right time at the right place. And it's it's very esoteric and it's it's just Baroque. And uh, I love it. I mean, it's fucking yeah. bespoke as have you. Re- yeah. Have you read that scene mm-hmm. where they go down into the uh, the Dreadwing armory? Yeah. Oh, that, I was going to bring that up a, with Jason. That seal with the with the Dreadwing icon and the Ironwing icon and Red Loss, who's the leader of the Dreadwings, like even I don't know what's in that thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and no, he's I mean, and he's the keeper of all that stuff down there. He's like even I don't know what's in that seal. <laughs> yeah, I I love it. I mean, it's there's so many parallels. Uh, you guys will get there, but I mean, there's yeah. I mean, it's uh, you know. Um, the what you know these weapons were given to the first legion because of what could happen they were entrusted to the first legion because of the eventuality of what could happen and so um yeah it's it's amazing because they I mean, they like they can't even talk about this stuff so yeah. i mean it, just imagine the bitterness that that would Im- imbue i think in you if you did all these amazing things and then yeah. you were you weren't allowed to post them, and, right? You know, it just on dawned Facebook. on me. <laughs> it just dawned on me. Um, you, we know the theory that the emperor and Malkador planned to have the legions turn on each other at the end. Like that was the whole plan. That's what Malkador least claimed to the uh, astropath. I can't remember her name. I feel like we've had this issue before. Um, but the emperor gave the dark angels some absolutely heinous civilization ending stuff. That's a lot of trust to put into a legion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a lot of trust to put into a primarch. And so I, I feel like there was, there was sort of, yeah, I yeah, I mean there. I mean this is this. So this is what I want to get into, Jason. I don't know if I, I don't know, I don't know if I want to get into it right now. Well, let's go a couple more paragraphs and then we'll we'll get into it. I'll read the next two, so then we can stop at that section. Perhaps the final blow to their fragile pride was to come at Canis Baylor, where simple conquest and stubborn complacency became ignominy and disaster. Here, in an otherwise insignificant system, home to a Xenos breed as yet uncatalogued by the Sage Brothers of Orders of Extinction and Annihilation, the First Legion and its Grand Master committed a small force to the assault. Confident in their ability to prevail, and secure in the tested strategies of the hosts and orders, 
Yet the Xenos of Canis Baylor, their identity long since purged from records, proved a threat unlike any faced before, fighting without regard for sane tactics and with a technology that defied rational explanation. The First Legion's initial attack was repulsed with heavy losses, an indignity that the First Legion had not known for decades. Defeat was a foe they had thought they had conquered, and pride began to cloud their wisdom. A second assault followed, and then a third, each repulsed in turn with mounting losses. With his faultless record now tainted, and his pride sorely wounded, Grandmaster Thrain led one final assault, refusing to accept that any might equal to his own warriors in skill and tenacity. This assault, even weakened by the losses already sustained, cut a sway through the Xenos forces defending the planet, but could not overcome the sheer numerical superiority of the foe. Overwhelmed, it teetered on the brink of annihilation. Grandmaster Thrain, realizing the folly of pride that had driven him into battle, chose to remain behind with his lifeguard, sacrificing himself to allow the retrieval of valuable combat assets. Canis Baylor was reduced to ashes from orbit, all trace of life on its surface incinerated in nucleonic fire, a measure that many argued should have been taken earlier had pride not forced their hand. All records of the foe that had fought were sealed away, though they would later be recovered by the Order of Broken Claws before being sealed once again for reasons equally lost to history. The loss, both of the battle and of Grandmaster Thrain, proved a catalyst for turmoil amongst the ranks of the Legion. Each of the masters of the hosts and the preceptors of the orders were sure that had their doctrines been given primacy, they could have turned the tide of battle. A subtle struggle for power erupted among the complex tiers of authority within the Legion, a struggle that slowed the pace of their conquests and threatened to unseat the Legion from its preeminent position of honor once and for all. So Canis Baylor. I feel like this is the first time I've ever heard that uh, planet being mentioned, but that's nothing new with uh, Black Books. Quick to the star chart, Dave. Wait, sir, go ahead. No, 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 that's your job. You're, you're the map guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Canis point Baylor. zero three star date. Mm. Um, no, I mean, this is this is the test for sure of the Dark Angels. Um you know, and they've suffered a huge loss. They've suffered the loss of a grand master, which is like effectively you know, their primarch at that time. Absolutely. Maybe not with not as much uh, love and, you know, love and care, but at the same time, he is the supreme leader of the Legion. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, so it's not bred into them at a genetic level, but I think it, it certainly is in terms of um, fealty. And we're, we're talking about the Dark Angels, right? It's, it's all about that oath, right? They're oath-bound to Grandmaster Thrain. And without that central figure, the orders start to unravel, right? It's just, so where is the hierarchy, right? Where is the liege lord? Where is that... Uh, manifest destiny, if you will, right? So, um, yeah, it's a crisis moment for the Dark Angels, uh, for sure. Because there, there's all of these sort of, you know, orders and, <laughs> you know... There's a lot you, of them at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And it was like over 100, I think. It's It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you imagine each of the, all that infighting with over a hundred different, you know, secret orders in your legion that it, it's a recipe for disaster to say the least. 
but it could also be a recipe for success, right? So, I mean, to to be the devil's advocate on this, and when you get to the Primark novel, I don't want to be a spoiler alert on this, but, like, there is a Xeno species mm. of which very few people know anything about because the records are sealed. Um, but there are, like, a handful of people within the Dark Angels that know something about that Xeno species, and they're like, yeah, man, we should probably talk about this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's get together and let's come up with a plan. And uh, it's sort of, yeah, it's a big deal. All right, so now, with the Legion at its lowest at that point, we're going to move on to the Ill-Made Knight the next section on page 89. The struggle was fought most fiercely upon the floor of the First Legion's Great Hall of Council at Grammarai. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. At the heart of the Legion. There, where once the masters and preceptors of the Legion had created much of the wisdom that now guided the Legionis Astartes as a whole, a storm of vitriol and admonition had erupted. Each of the masters of the Legion, unable or unwilling to see fault in their own wisdom, sought to attach it to that of their fellows, so that it might be excised from the First Legion. Most conscientious of all was the selection of a new Grand Master, for few would countenance the selection of a warrior from a host other than their own. As the pace of the First Legion's conquest slowed and the deliberations of the Council of Masters stagnated, it would be the intercession of Malkador, first among the Emperor's confidants, to break the deadlock. Rather than present some censure on behalf of the emperor, he chose to instead to sponsor a candidate of his own, seeking to stir the legion from its doldrums and return them wholeheartedly to war. His words to the Council of Masters was carved upon the litanal of the chamber. Such was their impact. And I'm going to give my best uh, Malkador impression here, so <clears throat> bear with me. A fortress can be held upright by many pillars. Alone they are nothing, but together they are mighty. Yet a fortress must have a master, or else all its strength is for nothing. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank Dude, you. That was really good, man. No, uh, I closed my eyes, and I was in a uh, Black Library book, I swear. Yeah, <laughs> not oh, boy. Anyway, so the warrior nominated by the Sigilite was elected by unanimous vote of the council. He was neither master of hosts nor preceptor of the orders, but a war-worn captain from among the vast ranks of the First Legion. Malkador's logic was impeccable, for such a candidate stood for no one branch of the Legion's arts alone, but rather for all as one. Where any of the venerable masters would find nothing but opposition from their peers, a simple warrior found acceptance from all. The warrior chosen was Urien Vendrake, once captain of the 14th Company of 8th Chapter, a Terran taken into Legion after the Emperor had united the war-torn world, and with a grand record of victory as Banner and as yet uninitiated into the inner mysteries of any one host or order. His was a legacy of bloodshed and battle, of rousing speeches and glorious last stands. He had stood shoulder to shoulder with his battle brothers through all his service and spent but little time in ritual or doctrinal debate. His new task was to unify a divided legion and return them to the Great Crusade and the purpose laid out for them by the Emperor unburdened by doubt and division. As a warrior first and foremost, Vendrag saw the value of bringing the Legion fully into the Emperor's Great Crusade, taking his rightful place at the head of their brothers rather than only serving at the fringes of history. For the first time in the Great Crusade, 
a small contingent of carefully selected remembrancers was allowed to join the Grand Master's entourage. Attached to his personal guard and given strictly limited access to the Legion's records, so that they might bear witness to the First Legion's ascension. All that remained was to find a challenge worthy of the Legion, some terrible foe to bind them once again in hatred of enemy, and, as though gifted to them by the Emperor, word arrived of a new terror encountered on the far rim of the Great Crusade, a race known to history as the Rangda. Okay, so I gotta jump in here, right? Because sure. this, I mean, this is this is beautiful, like, plot, setting because mm-hmm. number one Malkador sinking his teeth into the first legion right trying to appoint a new grandmaster probably one that is you know not I would I mean I wouldn't say like subservient but but certainly like not antagonistic to Malkador sure. um you know you look at sort of this um you know, the Legionnaire sort of background, right? Uh, Urien Vendreg. And we don't know anything about Urien Vendreg. I don't think his story has been written yet. Certainly possible, but he's definitely somebody who's good at speeches and uniting the order. I really so, feel like, I think it was either a Grandmaster Thrain, but he might, uh, Thrain, but I feel like he might have been mentioned in the Hall of Heroes in the Primark novel. Okay. I feel like his name was dropped somewhere in there. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it probably was. Uh, but you know, we we sort of we sort of see Malkador's hand in all of this again because you know, as the Legion starts to come unraveled, um, who is it, Malkador, right? Who mm-hmm. uh, you know tries to salve the wounds, tries to put in you know, the person that's going to bring them all back and uh, heal the, you know, heal the divide. I don't know. I think it's awesome. I think it's it speaks to sort of both Malkador's agency in all of this and also the First Legion's place because, wait, all of a sudden they're getting remembrancers? Like, <laughs> why? Why? I mean, these are deeds that shouldn't be remembered, right? Um why are they getting remembrancers? But I mean, Jesse, you know, from reading the Primark novel, that becomes a very important plot device. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I do like this narrative lane they took with, I did, I don't know, reading that, I kind of got a lot of, uh, Garvey Loken vibes too. Just this, uh, simple captain of this company now kind of raised to the forefront of importance. You know, definitely, you know, Loken wasn't made, you know, grand master, but he was made part of the Mornival. Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, I would like to open this up for discussion for sure. And I think, I think, you know, Jason and Patrick may have the dissenting vote here, but like, I, I think, you know, when you, when you look at Malkador and who he has chosen, um, Garvio Loken for sure, you know, um, and the other sort of knights errant, they're utterly loyal, right? There's just, there's no dissension within their ranks. They're utterly loyal to the cause of the emperor and Malkador. And I mean, I'm a loyalist too, right? So I, I mean, I believe in it, but I mean, for sure. But it, it's so, but it's also like, 
they're fulfilling a duty, right? They're fulfilling a destiny. They're fulfilling this is what they're supposed to do. And there's there's no there's no room for any deviance, right? There's no room for interpretation. I find it interesting that for as long as uh, Urien had been fighting, that he hadn't been picked up by one of the orders. So he was sort of unsullied, right? Yeah. Like apparently, like he had apparently a long legacy, definitely worthy. And for some reason, no one picked him up. I don't know if that's on either the fault of the, of the orders or him just deciding, nah, nah, I like what I'm doing. Yeah. It was, um, maybe, I mean, like you were saying, it was like a Garvio Loken thing. Like, uh, he was staunchly against like lodges and orders when he started out. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's like, he was sort of all right with them once they were explained to him, but you know, he never put any thought into it or, join one now obviously that's not going to be the same in the dark angels but it seems like kind of the same deal like he was more concerned with doing his job of being a captain than he was about like you know the secondaries sure uh question though uh Vindrade, he was the first guy to wield uh the blade right that uh corswain has like I know I've read that read that name from somewhere else, and he was either the Primark novel or over here. It was either Thrain or Vendrag who held the the blade. Let me see. Hey, here. I felt like he used it to like start the Ring to genocide. No, you're right. Uh, well, let's see. It said that the blade was once raised aloft at Advex Moors by Legion Master Urian Vendrag to incite the first Rangdon genocide. There you Hi. go. Hey. There you go. Good catch. Was it common for legion or legionnaires of the Dark Angels to not be already part of a uh, <clears throat> of one of the the different? Um, so I feel it was organizations. I feel like it was definitely common for them to not be part of a uh, of a host. But at the same time, I feel like if you did have a grand enough record, I would be shocked that none of the hosts would try to pick. A, I'd be shocked if the host didn't try to pick him up. Right. I mean, he was like a full-fledged captain and he had like plenty of battle honors and he was decently famous in the Legion already. It's kind of curious that none of the orders did try and pick him up. Yeah. So I'm starting to wonder if he just, he'd just love the thrill of the game and screw the politics. (laughs) I think that's a really, really interesting point, Jesse. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I think, if you think about the politics of secret societies, right? And so it's really, you know, sort of like the playground bully, right? So you're really good at something. Um, you know, it could be kicking the shit out of somebody. Um, or it could be like speaking eloquently at a ballroom dinner. I don't know. But somebody's going to come up to you afterwards and be like, hey, man, uh, you're really good at that. And we'd like to have you join our thing. And there's only like three of us, but you can't talk about it. And here's the th- here's you know it's you know here's the coin that gets you in, you know. Um, and so this this uh, you know this person, Urien Vendrag, who I don't I mean I've never heard of before, uh, but certainly has a place in history. Uh, he must have just said, you know what? No, no thanks. 
to, I mean, I can only imagine that he would have said like no to numerous offers to join various orders, you know, uh, host secret, you know, societies within the Hexer Grammatican. I mean, there's no possible way that he would have just kind of sailed through that without being so he's sort of an anomaly right i mean he's sort of yeah. an en, an enigma within the dark angels it's it shows very that, interesting. You know, he's you know being able to you know give rousing speeches and glorious last stands and, yeah just a legacy of bloodshed and battle like he's this guy's no joke like like jason said earlier he's kind of a big deal so it is pretty shocking so I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll one day read more of Arian, but that'd be cool. But for now, let's uh, wrap this up with uh, the final paragraph. Encountered by the 105th Pioneer Company of the Fifth Legion on an isolated world along the northern rim of the galaxy. Thanks, White Scars. The Rando were considered a grave <laughs> threat to the expanding Imperium, though at the time their territory was thought to encompass only a single system. They possessed a vile technology and fearsome aspect that warranted the most extreme of responses. Mustering a fleet numbering hundreds of capital warships, the new Grand Master had descended upon the isolated system of Ardvex Moors, where the Rangda had created a vast artificial war moon, an immense engine of war that had cost millions of slave laborers from a hundred worlds their lives. This monstrous weapon was defended by a fleet of lumpen and ugly Rangdan warbarks, each bristling with weapons and crewed by slaves whose neural collars enforced their unflinching obedience. The battle that ensued would leave the system of Ardvex Moor as little more than ashes and rubble. All six worlds claimed by the Rangda were rendered uninhabitable. Their fleets reduced the drifting fields of wreckage and their vast slave armies utterly annihilated. The campaign lasted for four months and cost the lives of some 5,000 of the First Legion. But as the banner of the Imperium was raised over those broken fragments of the Rangdan war moon that had rained down upon the burned husks of Ardex Moors beneath, the Imperium was reminded of the sheer power of the First Legion. And with that, we know that that won't be the last time that they encountered the Rangda, but seems like a pretty solid uh, first impression. But let's talk about it. They got a war moon, guys. They have a Death Star. <laughs> that's <laughs> no moon? That's, that's a Death Star. That's a Death Star. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pandex in um, the Corn and Deeps. They just blew Regulus up with a Death Star. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, mean, I remember that. Non-IP infringing massive space war sphere, but <laughs> it's a Death Star. Quote, unquote, war sphere. We know. It's a, a, it's a big old battle station that's spherical in nature and about, you know, small planetoid size. Might it's have a, a Death Star. really big laser on front, in the front of it. No big deal. Don't worry about it's it. It's cool. But yeah, so I didn't know that before, but yeah, the Dark Angels kicked the Rangda's ass the first time around. Well, it cost them 5,000 Legionnaires, but considering six planets, millions and millions of uh, slaves, slave warriors, Death Star, it sounds to me like a pretty, uh, pretty efficient victory. But why didn't the White Scars help? Like, never do we hear the white scars in, like, no, reference. They're, they're, they're pioneers. They're just, they're just scouting around, right? They just pointed it out. But, I mean, but, but to, be, to be fair, the, 
I don't know too much about the white scars, but when I hear the word uh, pioneer company, it sounds like just scouts and they're just explorers. Maybe they just saw that they did not have nowhere near the capacity. I don't know how big their fleet, that particular fleet was, but they're like, there's no way we can uh, take this on. But I we guess. do know our big brothers down over at the first Legion have, uh, have some significant experience with taking on stupid shit. And that's why they're fifth Legion, not first Legion. <laughs> there you go. And to think they don't even have their Primark at this point. Yeah, the lion's still nowhere to be found at this point. And they're just having a good old time, just monster hunting. Killing death stars and taking names. It's good. Uh, good read of the rise, the fall, and the potential rise again of the Dark Angels. Losing their first Grandmaster Thrain to a uh, a charge of hubris. Magdor reining everyone back in by setting them up with their next Grandmaster. And kicking the rang disaster the first go around. It's a pretty cool uh, group of stories we had here. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're going to get into it more. I think the ranked is coming up next, right? So that's not a one campaign. Oh, yeah. Nope, that was just the first. There's definitely a couple sequels to this one. Yeah. And we should be getting close to uh, rediscovering the lion at this point now, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because he has to show up, I think, before the second ranked campaign. Um. So certainly there's a tie-in there with Ulanor and everything else. But mm-hmm. um, do we, I mean, just real quick, I don't sure. want to like, I don't want to like detract from this, but I do kind of want to plant the seed here. We can come back for later discussion. But Jason and I have sort of like teed off on this before and sort of like Mechanicum, Imperium, Emperor, right? Cult of Mars. And mm-hmm. so here's what I think, right? This this blew my mind, right? So this 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 epiphany came to me as I'm reading the Lion, and like all the weaponry, the Dark Age technology, and it's way more than you think. It's not just a simple, you know, rad bomb or a couple, you know, fancy bio- pistols here or there. Yeah, biophage weaponry. No, I mean this is like some deep deep stuff, right? I think they're the contingency against the Mechanicum. I think that's called out in the book, actually. Okay. All right. We, what do you uh, think, Jason? I don't didn't want to spoil it for you, but... I mean, it'd make a lot of sense. It does seem, especially starting out, it kind of seems like the only thing they'd really have that could match the Mechanicum. Yeah. And so it would make a lot of sense if that was kind of like their contingency plan. They're ace yeah, in the hole. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I mean, is the more I read into the first Legion, the more I read into sort of what they have in their war piles and stocks and vaults and like the emperor's sort of just, I mean, he's foresight and just absolute commitment. I think they're the contingency. Yeah. Read, read that section again um, with them in the uh, vaults of the Dreadwing. I think it is specifically mentioned that, if the uh, if the Mechanicum were to uh, rear its head against the Imperium, the Dark Angels were there to put them down, more or less. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't haven't gotten verbatim, but that'd be cool. We <laughs> could do that next time for sure. Yeah, I do have a question because I figured at least one of you might know. 
when we were talking through the book. Uh, who found the phalanx or who had the phalanx? Where did they, where was that discovered at? Does anybody uh, know? Dorn built that, didn't he? Like while he was on Inuit. Did he? That fucking nerd. And that's, that was like his contribution when the emperor found him. It's like, Hey, I got this entire frozen ass, you know, ice cube of a planet. Oh, for fuck's sake. I built this massive space station. Hey dad, look at me. <laughs> I did something good. Oh, so I'm looking at Horus. I don't mean to like just straight up contradict you, Jason, but apparently according to this, according to Lexcom, it was uh, constructed many millennia ago by unknown hands during the dark age of technology. Oh, so he didn't build the phalanx, he just found it. Yeah, may, uh, huh. that's probably it. I'm trying to figure that, that. So, so here we go. The secrets of phalanx's construction are long forgotten, though it is known that the Primarch Rogaldorn brought it into the Emperor's service at the first time of their first meeting, and it performed proudly ever since. Sure, I'll join it. Oh, hey, want to check out my ride? Great. Enter phalanx. Very interesting. <laughs> I found it. Yeah, this is mine. I made this. <laughs> oh, this is boy. mine now. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, let's wrap this episode up, guys. You had anything else you want to uh, mention? Any other side notes before we uh, close this one out? No, I think I'm good to go. That was pretty good. Yeah. I had a lot of fun talking with you guys again. It's been too of long. Course. Dave, you got anything else? No, I want to say thanks again to uh, to everyone for listening, and thanks thanks for talking about this because, I mean, I mean, I'll be honest, like Dark Angels were not my thing before we started this like horror, you know, heresy grad school thing, and mm-hmm. I have gained an, an amazing appreciation for them, and uh, yeah, man, pretty. They're pretty cool. They're pretty fucking cool. I've got to be honest, like, kind of into them now. So, <laughs> I mean, not saying I'm like starting an army, but like, you know, definitely. Well, that's, that's the worst part with that, with the Dark Angels. You can make any army you really want to with them. Yeah. Play traitor, play loyalist, you know? I was thinking even like if you want to do like an armored company, if you want to do like secretive, like, assassination armies, if you just want to run a whole bunch of just infantry, you can. And they all have different uh rights of war to uh, interact with that yeah yeah. they are pretty cool yeah they are i mean for loyalists for loyalists gotta be the best at something they're not all loyalists (laughs) but uh with that once again thank you all for uh taking time to listen to our podcast we greatly appreciate any input any feedback we'd love to hear it from you guys what you like what you didn't like and with your support, we make it better. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to this. Just uh, hit that subscribe in your podcast app. We'll be there. You can join our Discord server, which the link will be in the description and the show notes. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at RR30K Podcast. You can uh, go over to Instagram at Remembrancers underscore retreat. You can visit our website, RR30K.com. You can find a list of all our podcast episodes, as well as the Battlefleet Heresy Compendium, which uh, Austin and Stephen have been working on a book, too, with the uh, focus mostly on the Mechanicum. And we want your feedback for the next uh, few months so we can try to get it uh, locked in. We want to hear some uh, beta feedback. So if you got some opinions, send them our way to bfh 
at rr30k.com. And let's see, if if you really appreciate our, our uh, podcast and would like to support us financially, go over to patreon.com forward slash rr30k podcast. Uh, from there, you can sign up to one of our tiers, each with different little uh, bonuses and potentially swags and some stickers and stuff. I'll be getting some new swi- uh, stickers here pretty soon. Uh, one focused on uh, this episode or this series for the Dark Angels Heresy Grad School. It's super cute. You can see it on Instagram. And once I get those st- stickers in, uh, Legion, Star- uh, Legion Centurions and Up will be, uh, be sent one. And as always, we'd like to thank all our patrons individually, starting with our Praetor tier, Alex Self, Chris Mack, Jacob Dillon, Garner.Tree of Woe, Joe from Music City Heresy, Luke Rizzuto, Matthew Boyce, Mr. Baldwick, Nicholas Quenga, and Sir Luther. Our Legion Centurions, Andrew N., Angry Boy, Duncan, John Christensen, M. Tanzer, Queen Corswain, Scott LeMay, The Original Applesauce. And finally, our Legion Sergeants, Aaron Maynard, Agrippina, new one, thank you very much, Emily O'Hare, Garrett Lowe, Mr. Seer, Nick Gillen, The Zoy, and What Do I Call Myself? Once again, we appreciate your support. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Keep those dice rolling, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.